0: Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and I'm really uh, pleased today to be joined by Ambassador Sam Brownback. Sam Brownback served as Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom from February 2018 until January 2021. He also served as Governor of Kansas from 2011 to 2018. Prior to that, he represented his home state in the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives. While a member of the Senate, he worked actively on religious freedom issues in multiple countries and was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. He and his wife Mary have five children and six ga- grandchildren, which I'm sure you are most proud of of all of your many accomplishments. Welcome to Humanize, uh, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you.
1: Hey, thanks, Wesley. Really appreciate it, and I appreciate you. I've appreciated our friendship over the years, and uh, and your you're, you're Depth of thought and uh, courage of presentation. Uh, Keep it up. Appreciate it all.
0: Well, thanks. The 20 bucks is in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) So, we're going to talk today about religious freedom, which I think is a very important aspect of human exceptionalism because it's a fundamental human rights issue. And human exceptionalism is about both our rights and our obligations and duties. What got you interested? Way back when, back in the 90s, before I think religious freedom became too much of an issue as it is today, what got you interested in pursuing that issue?
1: You know, I I think it was divine intervention, Wesley. Uh, I honestly do. I had this lady show up in my office when I'm a brand new senator, and she uh, is um, working for this group uh, that does religious freedom work. And I think, oh, that sounds good. Uh, I I would be interested in that. And she said, look, I can uh, intern and work in your office and do this. I said, great. And then she started bringing these cases to me of people that were in jail in Uzbekistan and China and saying, hey, we can write letters for these people. And uh, and sometimes we can get them out of jail. We can keep them alive. But sometimes we can get them out of country. And I said, well, good, let's help them out. Uh, and I still remember I'm at one of my daughter's softball games and I get a call back from her. It's on a late, it's a Friday night. And she says, great news. This person just got out of jail. We'd been advocating for, uh, and I was hooked. Uh, I thought, wow, if we can get somebody out of jail, that's just peacefully practicing their faith, uh, by using the office that I'm in to do that. I'm in, uh, sign me up. And, uh, I've been active in the field ever since. I
0: I think that's really important. It's also, I think, noteworthy that uh, because we live in the United States and we have such a good history of religious freedom, that perhaps, uh, I know I have in the past, I don't now, but perhaps you were taking that idea of religious liberty for granted before you uh, ended up with that kind of information.
1: Oh, I did. Uh, I did completely. I I just thought, well, this is what I'm used to. This is what I believe in, and surely the whole world has it. And then I'm rudely awakened to find out, no, there are people that are killed for simply being a follower of Jesus. They, they believe in him, and they're peacefully practicing their faith, and they get persecuted, they get communal violence, some of them get thrown in jail. We just had a, a, a pastor, a, a, a priest in India die of COVID, locked up in an Indian jail, uh, peacefully practicing faith, 84 years old, gets COVID. Asked for uh, be laid out on bond, Father Swami, and dies of COVID in jail. Uh, you know, and, and those types of stories just they happen all the time. And and I'm looking, we're in a very influential country. We can use that to push for religious freedom and and help people. And and I think we need to. I think it's our moral obligation. I do too. I I mean. What's it going to be like when we get to heaven and we just, if we say we didn't use the ability we had to save the souls and lives, we could. And we knew about it. And even as our, in our standing in
0: the world as the United States, you know, we are supposedly the avatar for human rights. And this is one of the most fundamental. And, and we'll get into this. I'm, I'm really worried that too many of us uh, are beginning to lose sight of the importance of religious freedom. I want to uh, talk uh, about this issue uh, from three different angles, and I'd like your opinion on them. It seems to me that freedom of religion comes in three forms. The first would be freedom of belief, meaning, and you've already uh, alluded to this, believing what you want in terms of of your faith. The second is freedom of worship. That is being able to um, engage your god or gods uh, or uh, your approach to, uh, let's say, Buddhist practice uh, as you see fit. And the third, which is, uh, I think, an innovation in many ways of the United States, is the free exercise of religion. Uh, And that, uh, I I found an interesting quote from Supreme Court Justice Frank Murphy, and here's what he said, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of religion all have a double aspect, freedom of thought and freedom of action. What do you think of uh, my three uh, approaches and what uh, the late Supreme Court Justice Frank Murphy had to say?
1: I think it's a good bifurcation of it. You know, the fight in the United States now is between this sort of idea of freedom of worship and freedom of faith, uh, or well, free exercise of the faith is really it. And some people want to limit it to, okay, you can only uh, believe that or say that when you're in your house of worship. If it's say it's uh, where the rubs coming right now is on morally uh, traditional moral views. And some religious practices and groups are saying, look, this is what we believe. Uh, And others are saying, well, that's fine. You can believe that in your house of worship, but you can't take it into the public square, this free exercise of it. And the United States has always been for the free exercise of faith, as long as you do it peacefully. Now, if you're going to go blow up a building, and you're doing that because this is how you're worshiping God, no, we're not doing that, uh, and we're not allowing that. But if you're peacefully practicing your faith, this is a peaceful belief of yours, um, then then you're free to practice that. That's been the hallmark of the United States, and it's the basic of it, and yet it really is under uh, attack and deep scrutiny uh, today. It sure is, and and
0: I think um, some people may not know that the idea of free exercise of religion is so fundamental in this country that religious pacifists, say during World War II when there was a draft, were actually excused from fighting and participating in the war because of their free exercise of religion. That's how seriously the United States, when we were at mortal threat in that time, uh, that's how seriously the United States has taken religious freedom. And as you said, I'm, I'm worried that we're not taking it as much anymore. And many people do want to shrivel it to just freedom freedom. Of worship, which allows a Catholic to believe that um, the Eucharist is the real body and blood of Christ and the Baptist to believe that uh, it's symbolic, but that it doesn't actually have an impact in the way one lives in the public sphere. And of course, I don't believe, and and you just said that you don't think that is how it was originally uh, created.
1: Well, I, I don't. And when you look at the fundamental practice of faiths, if, if you separate this out and if you limit it, then you yourself are only going to be able to practice your faith on that time when you're meeting with other co-religionists. And the rest of the time, you can't take your faith with it. You don't have a unity of life uh, yourself. And, and I remember as a young politician thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a man of faith, but I don't think you can practice your faith and, and be in politics. This isn't beanbagged. <laughs> Uh, and you know, you just can't take it with you, and how torn I was as a person saying, well, I, I, I mean, I feel good on Sunday and bad the rest of the week, and then I just said nuts. I I I follow Jesus. I believe in his teachings. I'm a flawed man. I'm a sinful man, but I'm going to do whatever I can to live this way every day of the week and every moment of my life, uh, and then you, you're no longer this torn person back and forth of, well, I can do this in the house of worship, but I can't somewhere else. And that's what it means to be able to have your really your fundamental freedom of religion and free exercise. Well, now that gets limited by, well, if you're a pharmacist, then you may have to, some places are saying you're going have to have to um, sell a, uh, abortion pills uh, if you're going to practice pharmacy here. And you're going, well, wait a minute, that's not who I am. I don't agree with that. Uh, and somebody else may say, well, you, you have to well, then I don't have free exercise of my faith and of my religion.
0: Why do you look at religious liberty as so essential to human thriving? I remember you and I had lunch once, and you told me that the work you were doing as the ambassador was the most important of your life. And I would like you to expound on that a bit.
1: Well, the United States is the preeminent country in the world that stands for religious freedom. There's nobody anywhere close. Uh, to it. So, to be the ambassador for international religious freedom for a country that stands for it during an administration that was emphasizing it affects billions of people around the world that simply want to peacefully practice their faith. Most of the world lives in a religiously restrictive environment, 80% of the world does. And that's kind of hard for Americans to believe, but you just go quickly to China, and they're at war with faith. You go at India, and you've got this Hindu nationalism that's really coming up. You go to the Muslim world, and if you're not a Sunni or a Shia Muslim, you're out uh, in most of it. That's changing in some places. Uh, and I thought this is the key thing that uh, if we can get this right as the United States, we can help the lives of billions of people. And remember, too, Wesley, most of the world organizes their life by their faith beliefs. Uh, United States and the West may be a little less so, but the rest of the world, the way they live their daily lives is what they what they hear from the pulpit, or they, they get from the mosque. This is how they organize their life. So the peaceful expression of that is about them being a real person, a dignified person that they, uh, that they are. This is, to me, essential about human dignity in the world we're in today. And then finally, and this is going too long, but I think this was the one of the really key decisions God made when he created us. He gave us religious freedom. He gave us the right to walk away from him or to choose him, whichever it was. And he, and knowing that we would maybe do wrong, and he'd, my view, he'd have to send his son to clean it up at an extremely high cost, he still gives us the freedom, knowing he's going to have to pay this extraordinary cost to pick it up. This must be an incredibly valuable right. You know, it's, it strikes me how Christian you are, uh, but I know
0: from following your career at the State Department, which I did pretty closely and I wrote about it some, uh, that you were not certainly restricting your activities to protecting Christians. Uh, you traveled the world uh, protecting people uh, of all faiths. Give me, give me a little and give the audience a little bit of a taste of, of what your work was as the ambassador of religious freedom.
1: Well, my first overseas trip, uh, I went to Turkey for Andrew Brunson, but then I went to the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh advocating for the uh, mostly Muslims that are being driven out uh, by uh, a Buddhist military in Myanmar, Burma uh i advocated a great deal in china and still do for the uyghur population that's mostly a muslim population in western china that's in a genocide now and is in concentration camps a million people in concentration camps today in the world today 2021 in a a country china that's one of the most powerful nations on earth i traveled to nigeria uh, advocating for both Muslims and Christians, but there it's mostly Christians that are being persecuted and killed for their faith. I traveled to India and saw the Dalai Lama and was advocating uh, for their ability to freely and peacefully exercise their faith in China or other places around the world. The, the key thing about religious freedom is you, you ha- it's, it is for everybody. It doesn't matter your faith. And it only works if we all stand for each other's opportunity to freely exercise our faith. And it's most powerful if a Christian is standing up for Muslims, and Muslims are standing up for Christians and Jews, and Jews are standing up for Hindus and Buddhists and Zoroastrians and atheists. Their right to not practice a faith. This thing only really works if everybody stands up for each other's fundamental human right. It's not about a common theology. It is about a common human right. And it's not about imposing your
0: faith on someone else. It's about allowing people to pursue truth with a capital T, which is probably the most important human endeavor there is.
1: It is. And that's the beauty of it, isn't it? I mean, and isn't that the dignity of what humans are about, is the the chance to pursue our creator as we see that creator, And pursue the route without limitations from other humans or from governments. Right. I mean, if in my view, this is a God-given right. And no government has the right to block that pursuit. And as you said, you know, for the secularist
0: or the atheist, it is just as important for them to be able to pursue their philosophical approaches or their materialism beliefs as it is for you to pursue Christianity or me to pursue Christianity. Because that is seeking, that is the individual human being, that exceptional species, seeking truth with a capital T.
1: Absolutely, I've fought for atheists in Nigeria that were being jailed because they didn't have a faith exactly, and that's the you can be persecuted in some countries for not having a faith. Well, you have the right to say no i don't I don't believe there is a God. Uh, I, I may not agree with you, but that's your right as a human individual to pursue. That truth that you believe to exist,
0: right. It's essential to to the essence of our nature as human beings. And, and something else that that I've noticed, and I know i'm I'm sure you have, is that you know there are all kinds of persecutions, but religious persecution seems to be the most angry, the most vicious uh, of the persecutions. I think of the uh, Coptic martyrs on the Libyan beach uh, who's had their heads cut off because they were Christian and because they wouldn't accept a very distorted view of Islam. I think about, as you mentioned previously in China, the Uyghurs, uh, who are under tremendous assault, not only the genocide you, you referenced, but forced labor camps. they women uh, uh, forced to have abortions or be sterilized. You think of the Falun Gong practitioners who are, are being live organ harvested in China, or the Chinese... Uh, uh, cultural genocide of Tibetan Buddhism these and then you can go to the soviet oppression of the eastern orthodox church where hundreds of thousands of orthodox priests were murdered or sent to gulags precisely because they had faith and there was an attempt to impose atheism why do you think that when we get to persecution and and again there are kinds there are all kinds of persecution but that religious persecution seems to be the most vicious and the most emotionally driven
1: Mm. Good question. Yeah, though, but you, yeah, I, I've got to tell you this one story. I was in Albania meeting with one of the uh, heads of the Catholic Church there. He was a man who celebrated a mass in memory of JFK when he was assassinated, did this in Albania. They threw him in jail for, for having mass because JFK was assassinated for 25 years. 25 years for doing a mass and you know come out of jail and i was seeing him and he wasn't bitter but you're going 25 years uh for a mass celebration yeah the, the the brutality of it is extraordinary and the manipulation is extraordinary as well i don't know why other than it is so foundational to who we are as people that it gets that sort of dark response because it is so powerful. Um, Communist governments have historically, they just have trouble with religion of any type because it's a higher moral authority and they don't believe in another moral authority than themselves. So communism, you kind of understand because of the atheistic, but in a lot of other places, it's simply because the dominant religion doesn't like the minority religions uh, and they won't stand up for them. That's the thing we've got to change is we've got to get religionists around the world to stand up for each other. And that's the key piece right now.
0: Yes. And, of course, the uh, the worst persecution historically has been anti-Semitism. I mean, Jews, because they're Jews have been subjected to pogroms, they've been subjected to the Holocaust, they've been kicked out of countries, uh, and that's going back thousands of years. So, so that really tells us something about the nature of uh, discrimination based on religion. It, and and for, for, for Jewish people, I think uh, they're the canary in the coal mine. When Jews start getting persecuted, I think things are starting to go in the wrong direction.
1: They have been historically that canary in the coal mine. I, I think, you know, unfortunately today, a lot of it's the Christians. Uh, a lot of the Jewish people have left many countries, and so it's the Christian community that's more diverse and diffuse, and, and you're seeing the level of persecution there. You know, Wesley, if you track most genocides in the last hundred years of human existence, it is a genocide of a religious minority yes. is what's taking place. Of course, we all know the Holocaust, and they were Jewish people, a religious minority. The Uyghurs are a Muslim uh, religious minority. In northern Iraq, we had the Christians and Yazidis. The Yazidis are a very small religious community, but horrifically treated by ISIS in a genocide uh, there. Uh, the Armenian genocide that the Turkish and Ottoman, late Ottoman Empire did was a brutal uh, time period, and unfortunately, that's just that's what we have seen as people. Is most genocides are of religious minorities. And I'm I'm very concerned today because uh, civil libertarians used to
0: understand that problem and that issue, but many today in the West, I'm I'm talking about because some uh, we have an increased secularization. Some seem to think, well, I don't have any skin in that game anymore, so religious freedom is going to take a back seat, and we can see that playing out in the collapse of the, uh, you know, bipartisan and bi-ideological, if I can use that term, support for religious liberty after uh, the pat after the uh, Smith case uh, in Oregon, and for the listeners, the Smith case in Oregon involved uh, two Native Americans uh, who took some peyote. Uh, during a Native American religious ceremony. And later on, they had a drug test, and they were denied unemployment benefits because they tested positive for drugs. And they brought a lawsuit saying, wait a second, this punishes us for our free exercise of religion. That was a free exercise case. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, Justice Scalia <laughs> made the worst decision of his career, in my opinion, uh, and I think he's a was a wonderful justice. But he said, well, This was a law of general applicability, and so the previous standard of strict scrutiny on on, uh, uh, interference with individual free exercise of religion, we're going to throw that aside. And so long as the laws of general applicability and not tailored to go after a particular religion, we're going to say it passes religious muster. Well, that led to uh, a incredible bipartisan coalition, liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, and they passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the point of that law, and
1: were you in the Senate at that time? No, that was just before I came into the Senate. So you were in the House? Yeah. Yeah. So you
0: voted for that bill, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah I did. And that bill was intended to restore, both at the state and federal level, the kind of scrutiny by a statute that used to be applied via constitutional uh, application, Pres- I think it was almost unanimous in the House and and you know more than ninety votes in the Senate. President Clinton readily signed it. There was a a, a great coalition, and and that was a proof of the American commitment to religious freedom. Then the, a subsequent court case. Uh, killed part of that law, not the federal aspect, but the state aspect. And so that old coalition was brought back together to try to redo the law to protect uh, religious freedom at the state level from state laws and state regulations, and it collapsed. And it collapsed over the gay rights issue because people on the left began to look at religious freedom as an excuse or a cover for discrimination, and uh, that's when that that incredible, uh, very strong, powerful coalition uh, dissipated, and we began to have uh, real. Um, Tension over that issue of religious freedom, particularly around gay LGBT issues uh, and so forth. Do you see any way that um, supporters of religious freedom can assure people who are of LGBT community and their supporters and so forth that religious freedom is not intended as to justify discrimination, but to protect the individual right of each person, including people in the gay and uh, lesbian community and the transgender community?
1: I, I really hope so. You know, one of my one bill that I worked on when I was in the Senate was um, with a young uh, New York new New York senator named Chuck Schumer, uh, where we were fighting for the right of Sikhs to wear their ceremonial knife coming into work. They have a little three-inch ceremonial knife, and there's a lot of places saying, "Well, you can't have that here. It's a knife, and we're not going to allow that in here." And we're saying this is, this is part of their religious free exercise, and, uh, uh, but that bipartisanship is, is gone. I, I do see the possibility because factually, factually, the countries in the world that are best on LGBT rights are also best on religious freedom. And it just kind of, we did a survey of this and we looked around and surveyed a bunch of the, the countries on this. And it was just amazingly uh, how many were, and it goes back to that fundamental human dignity to choose. That people in religious freedom and country, they value this because it's your right to choose. And if you want to choose uh, an LGBT lifestyle, that's your right to choose. People may not agree with you about it. They may not, they, they may agree, they may disagree with you about it. Uh, but so my hope is is that people will start to see that this is about fundamental human dignity and the right of that choice to you to make of your of, of what you do with your own soul, what you do with your own life. That's my hope. Certainly,
0: if you're a civil libertarian, it seems to me that should be your position. Um, a lot of people, when they think about this issue, you know, think about the Colorado cake baker. Case, cases since he keeps being uh, um, um, assaulted legally uh, because he refuses to design a cake for various LGBT kinds of activities or events. But you, you alluded to this earlier. I think the bigger issue isn't cake baking or flour arrangement. Uh, there was a case that was just refused certiorari uh, at the Supreme Court on that issue, but, but medical conscience where doctors uh, are in danger, I believe, of being forced to participate in human life-taking actions such as abortion and such as euthanasia and assisted suicide, even if they have a strong religious objection to it, to be forced to participate uh, in transgender transition procedures, including blocking puberty uh, of minors uh, and perhaps even surgeries on minors, Um, based on uh, an allegation that if they refuse to do so, it's discrimination. I can tell you, as you know, I write about this uh, quite a lot. In Ontario, Canada right now, uh, where euthanasia, lethal injection, euthanasia is legal, a judge has ruled, a court of appeals has ruled that doctors, let's say who are Catholic and think that homicide, because that's what euthanasia is. It's a form of homicide. It's not murder because it's legal, but it is homicide, a human being taking another human life, that doctors there must either, if they're asked by a legally qualified patient to be killed, they must either do the deed or they must refer to someone else and have them do the deed. Uh, That's called an effective referral. And then there's a very important case in California called Dignity Health. Dignity Health is a Catholic hospital, and uh, several years ago, Dignity Health uh, had a a hysterectomy uh, scheduled, and the patient called and said, well, this is a a transition, a transgender transition surgery, and Dignity Health canceled the surgery, and they did so for two reasons that are key to uh, Catholic moral teaching. One is you cannot remove a healthy organ that will Change the function of the body. Abs- you certainly can't do it absent a pathology. That was not aimed at any particular group of people. That's a general uh, moral teaching of Catholic health. The second was. The surgery would have uh, sterilized the patient, and under Catholic moral teaching, you cannot sterilize. A woman who had come to the ho- hospital for a hysterectomy for purposes of sterilization would have been just as refused as was the transgender patient for the very same reason. Yet, because there's a law called the ONRU Act in California that says you cannot uh, uh, discriminate based on sexual identity or sexual orientation, a lawsuit was filed even though the hospital actually helped the patient find a different hospital. And the Court of Appeals in California and the Supreme Court of California have allowed that case to go forward to a jury. And if there are, is huge damages awarded, or huge damages awarded by that jury to the patient, it's going to be Katie bar the door on Catholic hospitals. So, and, and then since that law, the UNRU law applies generally, and not specifically, And because uh, California does not have Religious Freedom Restoration Act, you can see the real danger for Catholic hospitals remaining Catholic. They may have to choose to stay in business or go out of business.
1: Absolutely. And that's why I think, Wesley, we've got to start getting more organized in this country on uh, religious freedom. We need a, uh, a National Committee on Religious Freedom in the United States at the grassroots level. Uh, And then we also, we just need to do a lot more talking and education about what religious freedom really is. It's not this right to discriminate. It's this right to practice your faith, your most deeply held convictions peacefully. Uh, And I I just, I don't think we've, and, and it's so foundational to an operational democracy. In a democracy, people need to be able to bring to the public square who they are. Uh, and they need to be able to bring their faith into the public square as well to have that free exercise. Or if you don't have that, you're going to have persecution of religious minorities taking place. You're not going to have a functioning open society at all. Now, you, you may think, well, I don't agree with these guys. I wish they weren't in the public square. But then that unravels because you can say that argument to anybody. You might not agree with anybody on some topic and then everybody's excluded from the public square. Uh, this, this is really a dangerous uh, trend line that we're on. And, and I just think we've got to start fighting just like kind of the national um, right to life started in the mid-60s, starting educating and telling people about the fundamental nature of life. We need to talk to people about the fundamental nature of religious freedom.
0: Right, and and that it's authoritarian to try to squelch it. Just as it would be authoritarian to try to force an atheist to have a religious philosophy or religious belief or go to church, uh, the only way we can have comity and respect for each other and true equality is with these kinds of liberty issues, because otherwise it becomes an issue of power. Who has the power to determine What is the predominant view? And if you're in the minority of that, eventually you're going to be on on the wrong end of the stick, which is why uh, civil liberties requires religious freedom, requires freedom of speech, and the other liberties that we hold so precious. Well, uh, Sam, I really appreciate your being on the show. It's been a very interesting conversation, and, uh, and I look forward to the, your continued work. What are your plans uh, as we close going forward now that uh, you're out of the State Department and back in the private sector?
1: I'm going to continue to work on international religious freedom issues with uh, various people uh, from around the world. Uh, I recently was in Sudan. Uh, I helped co-chair an International Religious Freedom Summit uh, and I hope to continue to work on these issues because I just think they're so foundational. I want to start pushing more domestically on religious freedom issues in the United States. I've last several years worked primarily internationally, but I think we've got to work more on them in the United States because any ground that's lost in the United States on religious freedom is magnified around the world because uh, everybody's tracking what we're doing It because this is the lead country on it. So I want to start working more on religious freedom issues in the United States.
0: I'm really happy to hear that, because as Lincoln said, uh, we are the last best hope of Earth. Sam Brownback, thank you for your service, and thank you for being on Humanize.
1: My pleasure. Wesley, God bless you and your listeners.
0: Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.